If you'd open your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3, and we'll be looking at the first seven verses of Zephaniah tonight, which begins with the word woe. You'll notice verse 1 of chapter 3, woe, it's hoy. The Yiddish and Jewish statement hoy vey, which you've probably heard, actually comes from this. Hoy vey actually means oh woe or oh no. It's not going to be good. That's what oy vey means. And this is the word oy. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I have made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction, so her dwelling will not be cut off, according to all that I have appointed concerning her, but they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. What a picture. Father, thank you for your word and your people who've come out tonight. To be part of it this evening, we pray that you would bless our time together and bless your scriptures, speak to our minds and hearts with them, and we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you're aware of what happened this week on Wednesday to that Turkish lawmaker, Hassan Bitmetz, who was making a speech against Israel last Wednesday, and he said, you'll not escape the wrath of Allah and he fell down with a massive heart attack that instant and died on Friday. So although he stood before people and said, you won't escape the wrath of Allah for supporting Israel, he's not going to escape the wrath of God. Now the question comes, do you think that's going to change Israel haters? There was one guy who said, you know, it's almost as if when he was speaking against Israel, it's like God intervened and dropped the guy dead. But do you think that is going to change most of the people to becoming an ally of Israel? I think not. At the end of chapter 2 in this book of Zephaniah, what Zephaniah did is he described the fact that God was going to go after Nineveh and destroy Nineveh, and he ultimately did do that. But the people of Israel could look at that and say, boy, they sure deserve it. The people in Jerusalem could say, yes. That's what they deserve. That's what they're going to get. They definitely deserve the anger and the wrath of God. They deserve to be demolished by the Lord. But now God says, but you need to understand something. So do you. In fact, you need to understand, I'm coming after you next. Now, we're living at a time when very few people think seriously about the pending judgment of God. For most people, the idea of the judgment of God is not a real factor in how they choose to live their lives. I mean, it's just a long way off there in their own minds. It's an afterthought. So they don't really use a fear of the Lord and the possibility of judgment as a factor in making decisions. 
But Zephaniah says the judgment of God is something you better take seriously. In fact, Zephaniah says if you have certain qualities in your life, you actually right now are on a path of experiencing the judgment of God. Even though he may not have poured it out just yet, you're on the path of experiencing it. So people would be very wise to take a serious look at this text and take a serious, honest look at themselves because what you see when you go through this passage is that God carefully describes the kind of people that he will specifically target with a woe judgment. Now when God begins the process of some sort of judgment, all kinds of negative things begin to hit. And it seems to me what we've learned as we've gone through enough of these books of the Bible, it goes in phases. In other words, God doesn't just automatically, instantly target and pour the whole thing out. What he does is he allows negative things to start hitting. He allows people's worlds to fall apart. The reason he does that is actually pure grace because he's trying to get people's attention so they'll respond to him, so they'll make changes in life so it doesn't have to get any worse. He specifically, in this text, is going to target political and religious leaders. Last time, we saw that God was going after nations. Now he's going to come after his own nation, the nation Israel. And a lot of this will go down in the tribulation period. Now, there are three simple parts to this text that unlock it. The first part is Zephaniah lists the qualities in those who become the target of God's judgment in verses 1 to 7. More than likely, the specific qualities that are listed here are qualities that God spotted in Jerusalem with Judah with his own people. In other words, he's looking at his own city, Jerusalem, the one city in the world that should be the place where you could look at a place and say, man, those people reverence God. Those people love the Lord. Those people have a reverence for the word of God and a desire to want to have a relationship with him. That place that should have been like that has become a place of evil and sin. Just this past June, thousands marched in some type of homosexual pride parade in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now you expect that in San Francisco. But you don't expect to look at Jerusalem as a place where they're just flaunting that kind of thing. I mean, the one place on this earth where you should look at and say, boy, those people have a relationship with God would be the nation Israel, and the one city in the world should be Jerusalem. And in our time, the one place on this earth where you should be able to find honesty and integrity and purity and godly leaders ought to be the church. It ought to be the church. You do not expect to find a bunch of child molester perverts who are addicted to pornography in the church. You don't expect to find that there. You don't expect to find God's people being a bunch of immoral, godly liars. I just saw not long ago a pastor murdered his wife, burned down the house, trying to make it look like she died in a fire when in fact he killed her. And thank God for the police. And they have wits about him. And they carefully analyzed everything. And they brought that guy to justice. But you don't expect to see that in the church. You certainly don't expect to see leaders that don't give a hoot about their spiritual life. That's what was taking place in Israel, and it wasn't good. The one place where there should have been this honesty and integrity and purity would have been in Jerusalem, and it wasn't there. 
And the one place it should be today is in the churches, and it should be there. Now, believers in Jesus Christ cannot ever experience the wrath of God, per se, because we're not appointed to wrath. And once we've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not destined for hell, but we can certainly receive disciplinary chastisements of God. God will discipline his people, and this text kind of gives us some ways to gauge ourselves to make sure we're not on that path where he'll discipline us. But this is more than just dealing with his people, because in verse 6, Zephaniah mentions nations. I've cut off nations. So when you read that plural nations and you read that plural cities, we would indicate here, man, God can, God can start tracking down people anywhere in the world. I mean, he literally can target nations and cities and send his wrath and judgments. Now, there are 15 qualities that Zephaniah specifically points out here that would indicate God would target a nation, he would target a city, he would target a power or a person with a negative kind of judgment. The first seven in the list are sins against God's word and God. The next five are sins that are committed by leadership. And then the final three are sins that are committed by all people. We certainly want to stay away from things on this list. You don't want them in your life. You want to stay clear of these things. Stay on a path of moving in a way that pleases the Lord. And these are not the kinds of things that please the Lord. Now, the first quality is those who receive this woe judgment are rebellious. That's what is brought out of the gate in verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious. That word rebellious, Mariah, comes from a Hebrew merah, is a particular word that means bitter rebellion that lashes out against God and truth. These were God's people in Jerusalem. God's people in Jerusalem, and God says, you are in defiance. Of me, you're in defiance of my word. You're God's people in defiance of the word of God. And when people hate and defy the Bible, and they just are rebellious against the Bible, they don't want it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen to it. They're setting themselves up for the judgment of God. The second quality is those who receive a woe judgment are defiled. That's second on the list. Who's rebellious and defiled. The Hebrew word defile refers to one that's impure, one that's dabbling around impure, sin-stained, defiling stuff. What's interesting about this Hebrew verb, it's a nifel stem. And what that would mean is that this is reciprocal action. What that means is the person in and of himself is not just defiled and impure, but actively pursuing it. This is the kind of person who says they're in a right relationship with God, but they're actually pursuing things that are impure. And when people get to that level, where they're actively pursuing impure things, they're putting themselves on a path of judgment. The third quality is those who will receive a woe judgment are tyrannical. Verse 1 says, the tyrannical city. Now the word tyrannical is a word that actually means oppress. It refers to violent oppression. These people do things that are violent to get what they want. It describes someone that will lie and steal and come up with scams and schemes in a way to get what other people have. They're just given to tyranny because they want more. They're willing to oppress people, use violent means if necessary in order to do it. Now, I've told mostly this story, but last year when we were down in Florida, a guy was going to try to steal our van. I mean, I actually had to go on video to watch how they do it because that's what he was doing. 
He yelled at me, and I was pumping gas, and what they do is if you get out of your car and you're pumping gas in a car not looking at them, they'll come real fast up to you, and they'll push you out of the way, get in the van, and take off with it. That's what he was doing. He was coming that way until he turned around and saw that I had a holster on. That stopped him. He decided he was going to go in a different direction. So you go online and we learn that there are people down there and that's what they do. They look for people that they can steal their vehicles. They'll steal anything. They'll use oppressive means, violent means in order to take it because they're tyrannical. When you have people like that who saying they're right with God and they're pursuing this kind of life, they're on the path of the judgment of God. The fourth quality is those who receive a woe judgment of God refuse to heed those communicating God's word. Verse 2, she heeded no voice. You know, I read an interesting statistic this week. Only 20% of people who go to church and say they're believers believe that the Bible is to be taken literally. Only 20%. Which means 80% don't think you need to take it real seriously. 80% of people that go to church say, oh, it's got good moral stuff in there. There's interesting history. You got a lot of fables. These people here in Jerusalem would not listen to the men of God that were communicating the word of God, and God specifically sent his men. He sent his prophets to communicate his word. They would not listen to him. They would not listen to any of their voices, no matter who it was God sent to communicate his word. Now, in every dispensation, God has always had a few that carefully and accurately communicate the word of God. He's done that throughout all of the ages, and he'll even do it in the tribulation. In the tribulation period, he'll sing a lot of 144,000 Jewish evangelists from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. They will literally take that kingdom message to the whole world, and they will be communicating the truth of God. He will have two prophets, according to Revelation chapter 11, that will be headquartered in Jerusalem, right in the city of Jerusalem, and they'll be communicating the truth of God. People won't listen to him. So when you get to the point where you don't really care anymore about what the Word of God says and you aren't interested in listening to the Word of God, that's a dangerous place to be. Because that's what he says here. They heed no voice. Fifthly, those who receive a woe judgment will not accept instruction. She accepted no instruction. So what that means is even if they go to a place where somebody's communicating the Word of God, they don't accept it and apply it. The instruction is given for people to hear and heed, but these people just went and let it go in one ear and out the other. Instead of saying, you know, I'm asking God to let me hear the word of God so I can receive the word of God and obey the word of God, they refused to accept it. And it didn't matter what they see God do, it doesn't phase them. It doesn't matter to them. They can see God destroy a city like Nineveh. They can see God have a guy drop dead of a heart attack. It won't phase them. They don't accept instruction. The sixth quality is a woe judgment of God means that people do not trust the Lord. Verse 2, she did not trust in the Lord. God at no time has ever given his people a reason not to trust him. In fact, what's amazing to me is that he wants them to trust him. 
Not only did people not accept the word of God, they didn't even trust God anymore. They trusted in themselves. They trusted in their greed. They trusted in other people. They trusted in religious stuff. But they didn't trust in God. What God's people that understand things realize is everything in life that's good can be gained by trusting in the Lord. God's own people wouldn't do it. The seventh quality is those who receive a woe judgment do not draw near the Lord. Verse 2 to me is fascinating. She did not draw near to her God. Now what amazes me about that statement is we learn something here about the heart of God. It would appear from that statement, she did not draw near to her God, that God longs to have a relationship with his people in which his people are close to him. From the statement, we can assume that God would allow people to get into a right relationship with him that's close to him. The problem is, they didn't want that. In chapter 2, verse 3, God had invited his people to seek the Lord, and here he invites the people to draw near to him. What an amazing thing. Here's God talking to people who've been rebellious and tyrannical and they've been defiled and they've been involved in sinful things and he's inviting these people to turn from that and get into a near relationship with him, but they wouldn't do it. God is the one who can give guidance and direction and blessings to people and they wouldn't draw near him to do it. These people wouldn't even go to worship services. I mean, they wouldn't even go worship the Lord. They wouldn't draw near to him and go to worship. And you know, there are people like that. They've always got an excuse why they can't go to church. I mean, they come up with something. They can go everywhere else all week long, but they can't go to church. It's just like some people with their excuses. They can go every place, but they're not going to draw near to the Lord by going to worship God, which is something God requires, or at least he says to his New Testament church, don't abstain from gathering yourself together. The eighth quality is those who receive the woe judgment will have ruthless leaders. Now we get a glimpse of leaders, and the leaders of the people are described here as predatory animals. These are political religious leaders that God classifies as being nothing more than lions and wolves. And the eighth quality about them is these who receive a woe judgment have ruthless leaders. They are specifically mentioned here in four different classes of leaders. The princes here, the serene, refer to political leaders in the royal line. So this would be the top political leaders of their time. They would have been involved in overseeing all kinds of things, including taxes and administration and collections. These leaders were ruthless. These leaders were wicked. These leaders didn't care about people. They cared about themselves. And when people just elect and applaud godless leaders, they don't realize we're sentencing ourselves to the judgment of God. Because that's where they're going to lead us, right into the judgment of God. The ninth quality is those who receive a woe judgment will have ravenous judges. Verse 3 says, Her princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are wolves at evening. The judges were evil and corrupt. What's described here is a political quagmire. 
You have the judges, the sopatim. These are the judges, the civil judges, the magistrates. They preyed on vulnerable people in the courts of law. They weren't interested in truth, and they weren't interested in justice. They used their office as a basis for doing ruthless things against people. Now, judges need to realize God is a just judge. And if a judge does not do his or her best to come out with a just, fair judgment, that judge is going to face the judgment of God. And I would not want to be a SOPA team or a judge that would face the judgment of God if I hadn't done my best to do what was true and right and just. Now, the comparison that Zephaniah makes about these judges, it's interesting, they're wolves at evening. Notice how he qualifies that, wolves at evening. And I don't think that's a coincidence he uses that language because that's where sneaky stuff is done. I mean, wolves prowl around in the dark. They do their destructive work, not out in the light, but at night. Usually wolves are in packs. And I think what God was saying here about these judges that are bringing the judgment of God on them is that they meet in dark, secret places. They operate like a pack. And instead of them making right, true, just, fair judgments that are consistent with God's word, which is what God would want them to do, they use their power for their own purposes and rip people to shreds in the process. The court system, obviously, had become dark and dirty and depraved, and this was Jerusalem. The tenth quality is those who receive a road judgment have reckless prophets. Verse 4 her prophets are reckless. The prophets, the Nebiah, were not communicating the truth of God. They had a lot of religion going on and a lot of false prophets telling people things that weren't true. You had a lot of ministers who were reckless in the way they handled the word of God. They weren't communicating it. They knew how to twist things to their own advantage. And instead of them giving careful study to the word of God, they decided that they could twist things and use the Bible as a basis for getting what they want. These teachers weren't teaching the truth. They'd become like a bunch of televangelists that beg for money and communicate to people, if you send us the money, you'll be blessed. You know, many ministers, I just read an article about this, are retreating from systematic Bible exposition. And you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? Why are many ministers retreating from systematic Bible exposition? Because it's reckless. And they can preach what they want. Instead of going through a book like Zephaniah that opens this stuff up, they can avoid it. They can make an audience feel good about themselves. That's reckless. And God says, that's what I'm seeing with the prophets. They're reckless. The 11th quality is those who receive a woe judgment have treacherous leaders. In verse 4, the text says, treacherous men. These leaders were treacherous. They were not leaders of integrity. They were people that played and preyed on people. They would actually get what they were after. They used treacherous means to get it. It's just like in our day when these people try to get people to pledge money, don't delay, do it now. You'll have a breakthrough blessing if you will send in the money. These are antichrists that are at work. The spirit of antichrist that uses religion and they use politics as a basis to trick the people. 
These are treacherous leaders. They're not given the truth. The twelfth quality is they have profaning priests. Verse 4, her priests have profaned the sanctuary. The priests, the konia. They were profaning sacred places. These are leaders. Leaders, ladies and gentlemen, that are supposedly responsible for leading the people into reverent worship and they're leading the people into loose, irreverent stuff. These leaders were leading people into ways of judgment. They're undisciplined. If you would challenge these leaders, look, set no unclean thing before your eyes. Be men of integrity. Set no unclean thing before your eyes. They won't do it. They can't do it. They don't have the character to do it. And I'm convinced that what is happening today in many churches is leading people right toward the judgment of God. It's shallow. It's irreverent. It's designed to entertain. It's not designed to worship God. It's being led by profaning priests. And the 13th quality is those who receive a woe judgment do not reverence God's law. Verse 4, they have done violence to the law. Now, God's word is to be reverenced, is to be taken seriously. What they did, doing violence to the law, is they twisted scriptures to actually justify their own evil actions. So they would take Bible verses, and they would twist these verses to justify what they were doing. These leaders were supposed to be carefully teaching the law of God in Jerusalem. They weren't doing that. They were leading people in the way they wanted to lead them, not the way God wanted. They were using the Bible to support their own errors. And people, ladies and gentlemen, who are heading to the judgment of God, they don't care about what the text actually says. They don't care if they butcher it. And frankly, ladies and gentlemen, there are not too many places anymore that really do promote a real reverence for the word of God. Not many places do that at all. Other things are more important. The band, the fun, the fellowship, the coffee. That's more important than reverencing the word of God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a thing that will bring the judgment of God. The 14th quality is those who receive a woe judgment of God do not know shame. Verse 5 says, but the unjust knows no shame. People that are heading to the judgment of God, they're not ashamed of their sin. They don't blush or feel bad about their sin. They flaunt it. They parade it. They promote it. They're not ashamed of what they've done. They don't ever get before the Lord and are broken and bruised and weep because they've failed God. They don't care. They know no shame. And finally, those who receive a woe judgment of God are eager for corrupt deeds. Verse 7 says that at the end of verse 7, they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. I mean, there's an eagerness about them to sin. I mean, these are people that can go through religious motions. They can make people believe they're really right with God, but they don't heed the word of God. They don't ever apply the word of God. They don't ever turn from what they're doing. They're eager to pursue their sin. They can get out of worship and go right after it. And God said, that is the kind of person, that's the kind of city, that's the kind of nation I'm coming after. Which brings us to the second part, the qualities that God reveals about himself concerning this. Verses 5 to 7. God is a God who is to be trusted. Now that comes from verse 2. She did not trust in the Lord. 
God wants his people to have faith in him. That's something I hope you embed in your minds. Stick to the word of God. You trust it. If it comes down to what the scriptures are actually teaching in a rightly divided way, you stick with that. I don't care what religion is saying, you stick with the scriptures. Secondly, God is a God who desires people draw near. He says that in verse 2. We already pointed that out. She did not draw near to her God. God wants his people drawing near to him. That's what he wants. The third quality that's brought out here, though, is God is a God who's righteous. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous within her. This is important to grasp about God. Get this in your minds. God is righteous. He's righteous all the time. He's righteous in everything he does. Everything God does in regard to his people, everything God does in regard to any nation or any city at any time will always be right. And if we're not doing what's righteous, and if we're not lining up our lives with the scriptures, then we're heading in the opposite way of the character of God because God is righteous. And if one is not willing to pursue righteousness, one will not have a close relationship with this God. He invites us to draw near him. But you have to draw near him pursuing righteous things. You can't draw near him if you're not pursuing righteous things because he's righteous. Fourthly, he's a God who will not do any injustice. He will do no injustice. That's what we learn in verse 5. Now that's very important to understand about God, and this is something you need to also have a grasp of when you're living in this particular world, because you'll have people say to you often, why would God permit that? One right thing you can say to them is, I don't know, I'm not God. Here's what I do know about God. He always will do what is just and right. That I know. Because he doesn't do anything that's a misuse of justice. He doesn't do anything that would be unjust. The fifth quality is God is a God who offers opportunities every day. Now look at verse 5. Every morning he brings his justice to light. God does not sneak around in the dark. He does his work out open in the day. He doesn't sneak around every day. Every day, tomorrow, you have a new day. You have new opportunities. Everybody does. Israel does. Jerusalem does. Kalamazoo does. Washington, D.C. does. Tomorrow, they have a brand new opportunity to get up and please the Lord. They have a new opportunity to live their lives in a way that's right and righteous before the Lord. And how many mornings does God do that? The text is pretty interesting, isn't it? And what it says, the text says every morning, every morning. So when you get up tomorrow morning, it's another day of mercy. All of the mercies of God are new every day. You have another opportunity tomorrow to walk in the ways of righteousness, to walk in the ways of truth, to draw near to the Lord, your God. We have every day as an opportunity to do that. He invites us to do that. The sixth quality is God is a God who does not fail. Verse 5, he does not fail. God is not going to fail at anything ever. That is why the program of God has to be literally fulfilled. See, if God promises that he's going to give Israel that land, and we certainly took a serious look at that last Sunday night, if God promises that he's going to give Israel the land and doesn't do it, he failed. 
If God promises that Jesus Christ is going to come rapture his church before the tribulation, which he promises in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and Jesus Christ doesn't come and rapture the church before the tribulation, he failed. If God says at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ is going to come back in all of his glory and put his feet down on the Mount of Olives and then set up a kingdom in which he'll reign from Jerusalem and he doesn't do that, he will fail. And if God promises the church will come back with the Lord and reign with the Lord and they don't come back to reign with the Lord, the whole thing fails. But here's the issue. God is not a God who ever fails. When he says something, it's true and right. When he says something, no matter even if there's a time gap between when he says it and when he does it, it will come true. Why? God doesn't fail at anything. The seventh quality is that God is a God to be reverenced. In verse 7, surely you will revere me. People need to understand this. There will come a day when all are going to reverence and honor the Lord. They will honor the God of Israel. Now, most religious places, in my opinion, are not promoting this kind of reverence for God these days that really take him and his word seriously, but there will come a day when the whole world will. God will see to it. That tribulation is going to make it very clear that this whole world is going to bow before him. The eighth quality is God is a God who wants his instruction received. In verse 7, he says, accept instruction. That is the simplest counseling verse that there can ever be. When I counsel with people, I'm a biblical counselor. I just basically say, here's the scriptures. Okay, here's your problem. Here are the scriptures. A, B, C, D. Here it is. You accept that. If people will accept instruction from the word of God, things will clean up. Things will turn around. There's your problem, getting people to accept instruction. People who accept instruction never have to worry about facing the just judgment of God. They never have to worry about experiencing the negative chastisements of God. People who accept instruction will receive the great blessings of God. The ninth quality is God is a God who offers grace before judgment. Verse 7, surely you'll revere me, accept instruction, so her dwelling will not be cut off. Now look at that. God basically says, look, I'm giving you opportunities right now to take me seriously. And if you will accept instruction, take my word and apply it to your life, apply it to your nation, apply it to Israel, then I can turn things around for you. Instead of cutting you off in judgment, I can turn this whole thing around and pour out my blessings. So he says he offers grace. The final part is the judgment of God reveals that he will justly execute. Most people have no idea how serious the threat of God's judgment actually is. Most people have no idea about the devastation of God's judgment. And I would just say this to you. What we're about to look at here has never been anywhere in history fulfilled. So it's coming. It's coming. I would suspect we're drawing near it. I'm not a date setter. God doesn't want us to be date setters. But we do see clouds forming that would indicate that this judgment could be on the horizon. And we do know from studying the book of Daniel and from studying carefully the book of Revelation that that judgment is going to be poured out on the world during that seven-year period of time. 
And there are six judgment facts that are brought out here that God obviously wants nations and Israel to know. Number one, he will cut off the nations. That's what he says in verse 6, I have cut off the nations. Notice the language, I have cut them off, even though they're still here tonight. Here's my judgment. I'm going to cut them off. I'm going to cut them off from blessings. We know, having tracked the numbers in the book of Revelation, that there will be half of the world's population gone, killed by God as a direct judgment of God. And if you check history, you'll observe some of the greatest powers that ever existed have totally disappeared. There was a time when Babylon was the dominant empire of the world. It's gone. There was a time when Persia ruled the world. It's gone. There was a time when Greece ruled the world. Now people are excited if they can find a coin that happens to go back to the days of Alexander the Great. They think they've hit a treasure chest when they find the coin. Because the nation Greece, as a world power, that's gone. And then you look at Rome that was dominating the world during the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's gone. Literally, God can just cut off nations so they no longer exist. That's what he says he's going to do. The second judgment is, I'll destroy the strong towers. He says in verse 6, their corner towers are in ruins. You know, people trust in all kinds of stuff, thinking that that'll spare them from experiencing judgment. So they have their fortresses and their bunkers. I don't care how big the fortress or how strong the bunker, no military, no matter how big nor technological, is going to be able to stop God once he decides to pour out his judgment. There's going to be no defense against the sovereignty of God. Whatever people are trusting in, that's coming down. The third fact is God will make streets desolate. That's what he says in verse 6. I've made their streets desolate. He's going to destroy cities. He's going to make streets desolate. Now, we certainly know that's not true in Jerusalem tonight because there are a lot of people that are living, millions of people living in Jerusalem tonight. But God says there'll come a day when I'll make that street desolate. And that, of course, will be when the Antichrist goes into that temple that'll be rebuilt, sets himself up to be worshipped as God, demands that he be worshipped as God, or he will destroy Israel and he'll go after them and trying to exterminate the Jew. The fourth fact is he'll remove all people. He says, with no one passing by. In other words, I will see to it that all godless people will be gone. There'll be no one left. I will actually remove them. There's no question that big cities feature a lot of godless people. In fact, I heard a godless person actually say, I like the big city because you can get lost in it. Not from God. Not from God. Nobody can actually get lost from him. God said, I'll go after all of them. And then he says, I'll destroy all cities. Their cities are laid waste. Now, when you read that, you can't help but think of the passage in Revelation where God talks about the fact near the end of the tribulation where the cities of the nations fell. That is specifically what's predicted to happen at the end of the tribulation. And then finally, he says, I will leave no inhabitants whatsoever without man, without an inhabitant. God said, I will literally see to it that all God-mocking, Christ-rejecting, Bible-hating people who did not reverence me or my word, didn't care about me or my righteousness, they were a bunch of phony frauds that were leading people in the wrong way, I will see to it they are gone. I'll remove them all. Now you look at this tonight, and you may say, well, okay, this is 
Old Testament. It's Israel, and it is. And it's Zephaniah, minor prophet. And it is. But when you go to, and I would encourage you to do this, when you go to the New Testament, and you go to Matthew 23, you read that chapter. The words of Jesus Christ. And just see what he's saying. What he's saying is basically the same thing said right here. God is going to go after these frauds. He's going to go after these phonies. He's going to pour out his wrath. But then look at verse 12. But I will leave among you a humble, lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. God says, even when I'm doing all of that, I will always take care of the humble people who take refuge in me and in the name of the Lord. Our refuge, Israel's refuge, the nation's refuge is Jesus Christ. He is our only refuge. You come to him, you take refuge in him, you purpose to obey the word of God, you never have to worry about the chastisement or wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these passages of scripture that you have. They're so applicable to the time in which we live. We go down through this list of things and, man, we can't help but make observations and applications and associations with the world in which we live. And we realize, Lord, that things are taking shape for the very judgments that you are promising right here in Zephaniah. I would pray, Lord, that we would be people of integrity in this church always. There would always be a reverence for you and your word. I pray there'd be purity here, honesty here, integrity here, nothing filthy here. I pray we'd have leaders who would be leaders of integrity. They would set no unclean thing before their eyes. They'd be driven to godliness so that you are pleased with this ministry and pleased with this church and that you'll bless it. I pray you'd protect this church always. May it be a shining light to a very dark, dark world. I thank you for the flock. I pray you protect the flock. I pray you watch over this flock. I pray they'd take your word seriously, Lord, and they would make adjustments and applications to their own lives so that you can bless us. May we all this week draw very close to you, walk close to you, according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.